Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Koinos Hermes, we're drawing our thread a little further, going into the labyrinth of wisdom, love, and beauty, the labyrinth of our own soul, the labyrinth of our culture. We've considered the interwovenness of soul and soil, the interwovenness of soul and earth, the interwovenness of psyche and cosmos, the interwovenness of all things. What does that interwovenness mean about how we arrive at true happiness and peace? And what does that interwovenness mean about how we arrive at insight and how we arrive at better ways of knowing ourselves, each other, and the world we share? If we want a better world, we must become better knowers. We have to arrive at better ways of knowing and being, living and loving, and that's a profound shift but one that comes with exciting and exceptional potentials for us all. And the world depends on it. We don't see how our habitual mind, the mind we use to do everything we do, actually doesn't function very well. And we might do all sorts of seemingly wondrous things with it, but we then all the more so can't see how it's not the best quality of mind. Our habitual mind does not think the way nature works. And we very much need to think the way nature works if we want to thrive, if we want to create a peaceful, joyful, and just world. But it's not easy to make this switch at least not easy from the ego's standpoint, because the change itself is joyful. It is a path of love and a path of joy, a path in line with our own highest values, our own values. It's the path the soul wants us to walk. But powerful forces keep us off this path of wisdom, love, and beauty because this path presents a danger to the pattern of insanity and the structures of power and domination that keep that pattern of insanity going. We're kept away from truly dangerous wisdom because it threatens the pattern of insanity. Now, how are we kept away? Overt force can only work in a certain kind of society, and it's not as effective, ultimately, as other forms of coercion. Now, we should make no mistake, the dominant culture does employ force and the threat of force. But the greatest levels of force in the overt sense tend to occur outside the borders of nations like the United States. We don't tend to see the levels of force inside the borders of the United States in the, in the present day as we do outside those borders. Within nations like the United States, the best possible coercion 
is one that convinces people they are relatively free and happy in the midst of their own suffering. And that's what we have. Now, there is the threat of force, and again, there is also force. And, and those two go together. We see that sometimes the police get brutal, and all the time they're carrying guns. And this is not to malign the police, many of whom take their jobs with the best of intentions. But it is to say that there is a threat of force. But the main form of coercion we have involves this kind of delusion. And one way we can think of it is as a kind of a bribe or a swindle. Over the past couple hundred years in particular, a sort of informal but incredibly binding material bribe has emerged. We willingly distract ourselves away from the soul and we willingly go along with the pattern of insanity in exchange for material consumption. This is an old issue, which the wisdom traditions have long warned us about, but it has taken on an exceptionally powerful and dangerous form with unprecedented consequences. We can see that today. Now, we could say that really over the past hundred years in particular, the past couple hundred for sure, since the time of Adam Smith, we were already getting pretty deep into this, but really the past hundred years and an extra boost since about the 1950s, but already before that we were getting into the frame of the game that we're in now. This distraction includes putting up with increasing inequality and various forms of injustice and insanity, including ecological degradation that threatens the very conditions of life we depend on. So we're putting our lives at risk and not just our own lives, but the whole community of life as we know it. The material consumption is not just offered to us in some neutral or benign fashion. Rather, by means of powerful seductions and clever manipulations, we get it ceaselessly infused into our psyche as a substitute for what our spiritual hunger drives us to seek. This process gets facilitated by the kind of duality many intellectuals of the dominant culture have encouraged. Some of these folks we still refer to as philosophers, even though they count mainly as professors of philosophy, and I don't mean that as some kind of an insult, just to try to clarify what the meaning of philosophy was in the past and how that is different than it is today. And this holds whether those people worked in universities or not. So a person might be a professor of philosophy because they are professing the philosophies that make the dominant culture function. Or it could be that they are a professor of philosophy actually working in a university and teaching philosophy in a way that functions within the dominant culture, even if it happens to be critical of the dominant culture. Now, as I said, we can think of this as a material bribe, and Lewis Mumford captures this bribe rather well. Now, here's a quote from Lewis Mumford. The bargain we are being asked to ratify takes the form of a magnificent bribe. 
Under the democratic authoritarian social contract, each member of the community may claim every material advantage, every intellectual and emotional stimulus he may desire, in quantities hardly available hitherto even for a restricted minority. Food, housing, swift transportation, instantaneous communication, medical care, entertainment, education. But on one condition. That one must not merely ask for nothing that the system does not provide, but likewise agree to take everything offered, duly processed and fabricated, homogenized and equalized in the precise quantities that the system, rather than the person, requires. Once one opts for the system, no further choice remains. In a word, if one surrenders one's life at source, authoritarian techniques will give back as much of it as can be mechanically graded, quantitatively multiplied, collectively manipulated, and magnified. That's the passage from Lewis Mumford that we're going to start with in our contemplation. And it resonates. You might re- even hear Nietzsche in there. Remember last time Nietzsche said, what, what are we going to do? We're going to allow science to tell us only about reality, reality that can be, I think he would agree with this sentence, mechanically graded, quantitatively multiplied, collectively manipulated and magnified. Now, Mumford calls this a magnificent bribe, and in a way that's a perfect phrase. It's also an imperfect phrase, because it's really a magnificent swindle. Not a bribe, it's a swindle. And even a magnificent coup. And more than anything else, a magnificent domination of the soul. But the soul cannot really be dominated or controlled. Its essence is wildness, wisdom, and wonder. Love, beauty, great peace, and joy. There are always consequences for going against our own soul and going against life, by which I mean spiritual and ecological realities in their non-duality. We currently face some of the more severe of those consequences, and we must do all we can to minimize the appearance of further, still more intense consequences, which are inevitable if we keep going as we have been and as we are. We need love wisdom more than ever just to be able to navigate the consequences we already have coming and cannot escape. And even more than that, to avoid something worse. Mumford says, we are being asked to ratify this bribe. And that phrase is quite well chosen, quite well written, because we have to constantly ratify it. And the reason we have to constantly ratify it is that we have the power. Only we have the power to keep the bargain going, or the swindle, or the coup. 
the Scottish thinker David Hume recognized that the real power in a culture is on the side of the governed, not on the side of the tiny minority who attempt to do the governing. And that's just as true in this sort of plutocracy or republic, however you might might want to think of it, an oligarchy. It's just as true in in this quasi, well, let's say, we don't, I, I would almost say quasi-democratic, but it's not a democracy. It's has that, that's part of the swindle. It's part of the bribe. In any case, we vastly outnumber the people who actually have power, those who benefit from our labor and our life energy. And we must continually assent to their manipulation, control, and extraction in a kind of inverted totalitarianism, to use the word, the term that Sheldon Wolin uses. And we'll get to some of his thoughts in a little bit. So we'll come back to the idea of inverted totalitarianism, which is, you can almost get the meaning if you, th- if you think inverted. What's that mean? It means there's not somebody on the top with a club or a gun. Of necessity, we ratify this swindle, this coup, by forfeiting our freedom. Now, freedom's a tricky term. Whatever we mean by it, if it's going to be sensible, it has to involve something beyond our ordinary sense of being an autonomous individual or a sovereign individual. And instead, it has to mean something along the lines of what most of the great spiritual, religious, and philosophical traditions have promised us regarding our potential. The liberation into which these traditions invite us differs from the ideas of liberty and freedom we find most widespread in the dominant culture. That means the kind of liberation the wisdom traditions intend for us, promise to us, hold out for us, that stands in tension with the ideas of liberty and freedom that have infected so many of us, even unconsciously. And that tension is in the sense that Spiritual liberation has no dependence on property and possession and it comes with an abiding peace and joy. Now that's just one aspect, but it's important to keep in mind. In our secular, we could say desacralized world, a world that we've sucked the sacredness out of, we tend to chase comfort and what we refer to as happiness in place of Peace, love, real joy, and true liberation, in part because liberation in this sense, in the sense intended by these traditions, it seems so daunting at first glance. Daunting to the ego, we could say. And so we get hooked by the swindle Mumford tries to get us to acknowledge and reject. Many thinkers 
have reflected on this swindle in various ways. Walter Kaufman wrote about it in his delightful book, Without Guilt and Justice. The subtitle is From Decidophobia to Autonomy. It's a wonderful subtitle, Decidophobia. And here's a passage from that book, Without Guilt and Justice. Kaufman writes, Cloudless contentment is not open to human beings. And if they trade their freedom and integrity for it, the time will come when they feel cheated. This does not mean that they will openly regret the bargain. Most people have failed to cultivate their critical perception of their own present position and of the alternatives they might have chosen. Precisely this is the trade they made. This is what they gave up for comfort and contentment. Now they feel cheated without knowing how and when and why. What they feel is a diffuse and free-floating resentment in search of an object. Having given up autonomy for happiness... They have missed out on both. We see here this resonance. There's a bargain. Kaufman's touching on it. Mumford was touching on it. It's a swindle. Both of them sense it's a swindle. And when we look out at what's happening in the world and people acting out with so much violence, aggression, and confusion, denial of truth, denial of reality, ecological and spiritual realities just being rejected, we see that there's resentment in search of an object. Now, the happiness that we traded off is not the genuine happiness and well-being promised to us by the wisdom traditions of the world. This is difficult because philosophers are constantly either equivocating on this term or not being careful enough, not making clear the distinction. The varied traditions of the world, the wisdom traditions, they share a common ground, inviting us to renounce all our subtle and overt efforts to comfort, coddle, and pleasure ourselves. Even traditions that embrace sensuality and encourage a profound appreciation and enjoyment of life nevertheless differentiate this from our habitual notions of happiness. In the ancient Greek tradition, we find this discernment in the contrasting notions of hedonia and eudaimonia. The former signifies conventional happiness and enjoyment and pleasure, and the latter signifies something deeper and more meaningful, for which the ego may have to put up with a great deal of discomfort, pain, fear, uncertainty, and renunciation in order for us to bring that fuller happiness to realization. So the hedonia is the kind of shallow happiness. We think it's going to make us happy. We might take it very seriously. It might be engaging in a thousand different ways. It might be even sort of ecstatic in its energy at times. But the eudaimonia, eudaimonia sort of means something like good spirit. Our soul feels good. And it's much deeper and we're willing 
to feel discomfort for it. And we might have to. In many cases, we might have to experience discomfort. Usually, the ego will have to in order to arrive at that deeper happiness. And that's, in fact, what Kaufman is getting at. He's saying that if we give up autonomy, now he's using the word autonomy, and that's we just criticized that a few minutes ago, this notion of the sovereign individual. He's talking about this deep sense of liberation in the spiritual traditions. If we give up our capacity for that freedom and liberation, that's the eudaimonia. And we'll give it up sometimes for the hedonia. But then we lose out on real happiness as well as freedom. Sadly, many people know this sort of discomfort and renunciation only in limited contexts. We're aware of it. We understand that. But it's usually very limited. People understand it if they're starting a business or they play a sport, even at a middling level. Certainly, if you play a sport at a very high level. And unfortunately, we don't see many people working with these dynamics and the ways the wisdom traditions invite. It's one thing to feel that you're sacrificing and you're getting discomfort in starting a business, but that's not the path to enlightenment according to any of the traditions that we know of. So there's something there that we're familiar with, but we're missing out on the real aim and intention. So we see the swindle in Mumford. We see it in Kaufman. And the very philosophical writer Kurt Vonnegut also touched on this swindle. He framed the swindle much more humorously than Kaufman did, unsurprisingly. I don't know if I heard Kaufman or have read Kaufman making too many jokes. Vonnegut was hilarious. And in a graduation speech that everyone in the dominant culture should read, Kurt Vonnegut said this, among other things. This is not the whole speech, but it's worth looking up and and reading it. Maybe it's, it's even recorded somewhere. I don't know. So here's Kurt Vonnegut talking to some college graduates. I look back on all the taboos I was taught, that everybody was taught, and I see now that they were parts of a great swindle Their purpose was to make Americans afraid to get close to one another, to organize. It was even taboo to discuss the American economic system and its bizarre methods of distributing wealth. I learned that at my mother's knee, God rest her soul, God rest her knee. She taught me never to say anything impolite about the neighborhood millionaire. She didn't even want me to wonder out loud How the hell he ever got to control that much wealth? Vonnegut was perhaps as affected by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche as Professor Kaufman, Walter Kaufman, was. And he does one better than the professor, I think, in this little talk. He intimates that the swindle must compromise intimacy thus pointing the same way as those beautiful traditions of liberation which always seem to invite us to verify the interwovenness of liberation and intimacy. Sometimes we don't really think of them that way. Freedom is, I'm cut off from everybody, I can do whatever I want. And here, in these traditions, so many wisdom traditions, we see that freedom and intimacy 
arise totally interwoven. What a puzzling paradox. And Kaufman doesn't really get at that intimacy. He's a little bit too focused on the autonomous aspect of freedom. In any case, this assent to the swindle, because we have to assent to it, we have to ratify it. Our assent to this swindle happens by means of a drugging or even a poisoning of the soul. Cutting ourselves off from intimacy and interwovenness is the poisoning of the soul. And since we must include nature in this intimacy and interwovenness, we must see all philosophies as toxic, which endorse a duality between human and nature, and see the poisoning and degradation of ecologies as the poisoning and degradation of the soul. In one way or another, the soul must be controlled by structures of power or else it will overthrow them. That's why we have to have this inverted totalitarianism. It's why we have to be distracted away from the soul constantly. The material bribe has to keep us constantly engaged with the next shiny new thing, the next piece of tech, the next this, the next that. Everything seems like it's changing all the time and yet it's all the same swindle. We can consider this in relationship to a painful description of how elephants are controlled by humans who have lost touch with their soul. Because that's what happens. When we lose touch with our soul, then we relate to the world and to the community of life, our fellow sentient beings who are also either creations of the divine, maybe we came from a lineage that says that the divine made everything, well then those are divine creations. Or we come from, or in some other way, accept the lineage that teaches us that we're all kindred, we're all on the same big family tree of life, that these are our relations, and that in any case they are sentient. So we lose touch with our soul and that begins to poison the soul of the world, the souls of other beings. Now, so here's a passage about circus elephants. Circus elephants walking in single file down a street. Why don't they run away? It's simple. It's because they're dead. They are dead souls in circuses and zoos. The only way to get elephants who are so powerful to do what a human wants with just a flick of their hand is to beat the soul out of them. I saw it in Peach when I beat her. I saw her soul leave. And they come to zoos as just kids less than five years old, less than chest height, Then we starve or beat them or a combination of both to make them dependent on us. Not the way to treat animals and no need to. Elephants are tactile and nurturing. Sometimes I would sleep right with the elephants. One time I had fallen asleep and woke up with Peach standing straddled over me to make sure the younger elephants wouldn't step on me. 
Those are the words of Ray Ryan, a former zookeeper. The keepers of our human zoo cannot use too much force, again, at least not within their borders, especially within a more, quote-unquote, civilized or developed nation-state. And not if they want to appear civilized, that's the point. So our souls are degraded and our ascent is manufactured in other ways. The loss of intimacy means a loss of our true power. The loss of an understanding of our alternatives, alternative pathways of development of our own consciousness, alternative possibilities for experience in this mysterious cosmos, All that is kept away from us. In other words, real philosophy is kept away from us. The threat of violence does exist. We have to say it again and again. Sometimes it gets acted out in horrific ways, even in the so-called developed nations. But for the most part, it's only the threat that really carries the day, just the threat of it. The rest of the soul poisoning happens in other ways. And Mumford's analysis seems to miss some key details of that. For instance, contrary to what Mumford suggests, you might remember he said that we we have every material advantage, but we don't have every material advantage. For one thing, some of us have far more material advantage than others, a fact that, according to research, that we could save for another time, we'll maybe get to that another time, but we don't really see that. We don't really see how big the gap is between the people who are really wealthy, and everyone else. We may not want to see it. And then we have this other issue that even basic things like clean air and clean water are becoming luxuries. We may not see it. We may not want to see it. Before the time of conquest here on Turtle Island, anyone who lived on Turtle Island, what we now call North America, anyone living here could drink clean, refreshing, delicious water from rivers, streams, and springs that none of us today can drink from safely. That's a remarkable fact. The Dalai Lama's even mentioned that when he, it, it was still that way when he was a little boy in Tibet, that if you saw something that looked like water, you could drink it. And he said he came to the United States and he found out that something can look like water and not be drinkable. Of course, the wealthiest among us, the very wealthiest, can move to places with cleaner water or they can have the very best possible water brought to their door. The rest of us cannot do that. There's also a huge gap between the accessibility of quality food for the very rich and the very poor. We have what are called food deserts throughout the United States. They usually appear in poor communities. In such places... One is hard-pressed to find an organic vegetable, but junk food and junk ease abounds. So it's a food desert not because you can't get any food at all. Sure, there's a McDonald's or a Burger King, but you can't find healthy organic produce. The junk food and the junk ease abounds, as do junk ways of knowing ourselves in our world. Even though all the people living in these areas have as much potential for wisdom, love, and beauty as anyone else, We're not criticizing them. We're criticizing these structures. 
And we can note that ongoing lack of total health and vigor works in favor of our current structures of power. From the standpoint of current structures of power and domination, the weaker we are, the more unhappy, domesticated, overworked, overloaded, and so on, the better. Physical strength must be confined to sports and other forms of entertainment. It must be restricted to media and marketing and to sanctioned forms of violence and must not be allowed to show up as sheer physical capacity to non-violently rebel against aggression, extraction, degradation, and injustice. That kind of strength we're not going to publicize too much. Lewis Mumford, in that formulation that we considered, he also leaves out the way fear and misery function to keep us going. Fear and misery keep us deeply rooted in Sorrowville. That's what we can call the whole pattern of insanity, that we're living in Sorrowville. We're hooked on the hopes and dreams of Sorrowville, the delusions and pathologies of Sorrowville. And that means fear and misery of all kinds, including self-doubt, self-hatred, doubt of others, hatred of others, and more. That all goes with it. Generally speaking, the system takes maximal advantage of the aversion-craving axis of our habitual mind. There's a kind of basic axis in our experience as part of the structure of our experience. That every moment of experience, when it arises, you, if you pay attention to your experience, you will see that every moment of experience arises with an, a bare sensational quality of positive, negative, or neutral. When it's positive, we crave more. When it's negative, we feel aversive toward it. When it's neutral, we get bored and want it to change. And so the system takes maximal advantage of this aversion and craving axis. You can call it the hope and fear axis as well. Or the anger and clinging axis. In some sense, Mumford acknowledges only the craving side of the spectrum. But hope and fear, craving and aversion, they go together. And again, when neither are present, if the experience seems relatively neutral, we get bored and we're looking for the thing we crave. As we experience fear and pain, two things happen. We attempt to escape the situation, which can include blocking our perception of the facts. That's one way that we sometimes will escape. And to the degree we cannot escape, we will medicate. Both of these reactions arise from a habit of reacting to pain and discomfort by focusing on ourselves, becoming in one way or another more self-centered. The same holds for the discomfort of craving. And you can see that this is where the sense of the sovereign individual gets us confused. There's a confused notion there. We We are focusing on our sovereign individual self in response to discomfort in response to hopes, fears, cravings, clingings, attachments, reactivity, and so on. Though we naturally want to alleviate our suffering, we know in our hearts that to medicate is not to heal. 
Medication is not medicine. We use things like junk food, junk ease, vacation, alcohol, cigarettes, sex, violence, gambling, fantasies of wealth and success, the vast array of media, including so-called social media, the self-help industrial complex. We use all of that and, of course, all those opioids. All of that we use to medicate ourselves so that we can keep the engines of so-called progress moving along because this is all progress. Or so we're led to believe. It's all development. It's all progress. And it's like a massive wheel. The engine of Sorrowville. The engine of the thought patterns of suffering is a wheel, a merry-go-round of insanity we get trapped on. And right now it's spinning faster and faster, which makes us all the more hesitant to jump off. The sheer pace of it encourages further medicating and unplugging. I mean, you know what it's like when you were a kid, maybe you jumped off the merry-go-round. It's always fun. Get the merry-go-round going and then you jump off. But if it's going too fast, you knew that jumping off was dangerous. And so you cling, you hold on to it. And so the pace of this machinery, the the engine of Sorrowville, the big wheel going round and around, more of the same and again and again, back to fear and craving, back to medicating, it just encourages us to keep unplugging. We aren't unplugging from the wheel itself. We aren't healing anything. We're unplugging from our true nature and the interwovenness and the intimacy. Since food is essential to us, medicating and unplugging by means of food happens pervasively. A tremendous amount of the processed insanity we call food, the rationally formulated poison referred to by capitalism as food, That functions largely as a mechanism of distraction and profit. We are distracted from the real ills we experience and in exchange we increase the wealth of corporations and a very tiny portion of the population. We find two things at work. First of all, surprisingly enough, we don't eat food anymore. We eat what capitalism provides us. Secondly, because of the nature of capitalism, it doesn't work with natural hunger and appetite, but rather with craving. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, there's some research showing that when we're in pain or exposed to things that get us to see life as harsh or fearful, we eat more junk food, even if we don't particularly like it or want to eat it. So provoking that fear and craving axis changes our behavior and it keeps us clinging to the engine of Sorrowville, the big wheel going round and round. And we're all familiar with the insane offerings of the food as medication approach, which, which capitalism offers us. The presence of extreme eating competitions is a strange symptom of our culture as is the fact that we deep-fry sticks of butter, we eat pizza with cheese stuffed in the crust, we try to put bacon on everything. 
It has become widely known that processed foods come out of a scientific production process that seeks to achieve a bliss point. That's what they call it. (laughs) It's a little different than what Buddha meant by bliss. It's a bliss point of flavor meant to maximize the addicting quality of this so-called food. And they usually aim for that point by optimizing the hit of fat, sugar, and salt that we take in with each bite. That's why there's sugar in everything. And they usually, of course, in general, use ingredients that are typically produced via this wheel of suffering that makes us seek food as medication in the first place. And that, this is just all to show how incredibly well put together the pattern of insanity is. It's very well put together. It holds itself together. So the ingredients tend to be unhealthy for humans and also for large-scale ecologies. And both the production of the ingredients as well as the consequences of using and consuming them create tremendous suffering, which in turn leads us to crave more medication, including more food as medication. So there's an addiction pathway that gets created where we get diseased, where we have to take other forms of medication. Now put all this together with the fact that our politicians and our media constantly try to scare us and keep us scared and also keep us angry. And all that does is it keeps us in a state of craving for medication and unplugging of all kinds. The U.S. in particular is quite a fearful society even though in terms of hard facts and statistics we're relatively safe. And even though many of us, perhaps most of us, don't experience any ongoing threat of overt violence from the state or even from criminal activity. It's not that these things don't exist. It's that our fear of them is a lot bigger than their reality. We have to acknowledge that significant portions of the population do have to deal with this both within the dominant culture and, again, especially outside its borders, where the dominant culture carries on, orchestrates, or otherwise supports violence, domination, aggression, atrocities, things we don't want to think about. They're painful. But relatively speaking, people living in the U.S. have far fewer threats to worry about than people living in some other countries. And we have to keep in mind that the fear mongers need to scare the people with the least violence in their lives. The ones who see violence and poverty already live with fear and dread. So we don't have to scare them as much. It's more important to scare the people who are not living in the midst of violence and poverty, but it's good to keep everybody pretty scared and angry. And so the propaganda machine constantly tells us things, crazy things like the Muslims are out to get us. Various plots are even engineered by law enforcement to entrap would-be terrorists who often turn out to be people who would have just lived their lives and been normal and not done anything wrong. But they get lured into it. And then we hear the Mexicans are taking our jobs and they're engaging in criminal activity and violence. We hear about blacks and immigrants and these these were all words we're putting in quotes. The Muslims are out to get us. 
the Mexicans, the immigrants, you know, these crazy notions. But we really believe it. We're told that people are grooming our children, grooming our children for unthinkable things. And we are a society of the gun in the United States, which means we see higher levels of weaponized violence compared to cultures that don't have the same orientation. So here, there's a thread that's going through with this bribe, this swindle, and we have to touch back on Walter Kaufman's suggestion of resentment in search of an object. We've been swindled, the soul feels sick, resentment starts to bubble up. We don't even understand it fully because we've been kept away from the wisdom traditions that would help us reflect on our own lives and see things. We think we know. That's why we have all that reactivity. The reactivity depends on thinking we know already, so now knowledge is in darkenment instead of enlightenment. So in various ways, fear gets provoked in us more or less intentionally. Anger too. And this sense of fear and anger in turn provokes us to think less wisely, less compassionately, less beautifully than we are capable of. And, and, going right together with that, we get materialistic and greedy, increasingly self-obsessed, self-centered. That's what pulls us into the wrong ideas of what freedom means. I'm free to go buy what I want, eat what I want, do what I want. And I've got to go out and stuff my face with whatever I want because the world might end. I've got to go get mine before somebody else gets theirs or before they get mine. But they might get theirs and then there won't be any left for me, so I've got to get mine first either way. Now that's not a conscious thought, usually. And it might not be conscious at all. It might be fully repressed or suppressed. It's a matter of seeing destruction around us and feeling like something has got to be done, feeling the swindle. Not knowing what to do, we focus on ourselves. And of course, we might focus on our immediate family too, but not in a thoughtful and compassionate way. And some kind of deep intelligence in us gets triggered in, and we misinterpret it. It gets encumbered into reacting as if there might be starvation or doom around the corner. And those intelligences command us to do things like feed, particularly on high-calorie foods, even if they aren't nourishing. Eating or even binging, and that includes binge-watching, which is, we could say, poor eating for the mind, poor diet for the mind, a variety of junk food for the soul. So eating or binging distracts us from our suffering and gives us a feeling that we have done something. We get some temporary relief. I think video games might do that in, in their own particular way because we are doing something when we play a game. There's a lot of doings that we can engage in that are not really helping to heal anything, but we get temporary relief. We experience pain, fear, anxiety, depression, self-hatred, perhaps especially after social media exposure, the self-hatred might go up, so might the loneliness, 
And then we have weariness from working long hours or just working meaningless jobs. You know, jobs that we know somewhere, maybe just consciously we know we don't want to do it and nobody should have to do this job. Or maybe it's unconscious. We rationalize at a conscious level, what I'm doing is important, somebody's got to do it. But the soul says no. And then we don't have any good practices of rejuvenation and healing. So then we need a cigarette or a pack or more just to get through the day. We need alcohol and pills to wind down at night. We need painkillers and other medications because the whole organization of society is unwise and unhealthy. And if we look at it carefully, what we see is that this so-called civilization depends on ill-being, not well-being, ill-being. And from that perspective, health, real health, might look like wildness, even madness, to people who have become civilized. We have learned how to know living this way. We have learned how to live knowing this way. Notice those two things and how they go together. We have learned how to know living this way and learned how to live knowing this way. This way of knowing ourselves, each other, and the world. And we cannot really evade sensing that this supposed knowing is sheer stupidity. And so we could say that the bargain or the swindle or the coup that Mumford, Lewis Mumford speaks of has changed. Though we might have agreed to play along, it has begun to break down and the epistemic errors have caught up with us. We're starting to see that it's just stupid. More and more, I think we seem to sense it, know it in our bones even if the ego will not allow a full confrontation with it. We can call that an unthought known, as they do in psychoanalysis. Something that the soul knows, but the ego does not allow into conscious thought. And that even may be part of why we seem to be pushing so hard to collapse the conditions of life. Doesn't that seem crazy? Why are we doing that? Because we won't let ourselves know the truth that we know. And when an inner conflict is not made conscious, it appears in the outside world as fate. As I'm so fond of quoting one of Jung's finest lines. We find here a general crisis of meaning. So many crises. They all come down to a philosophical crisis, a crisis of wisdom, love, and beauty. But we could call it a crisis of meaning because we don't know the meaning of the game anymore. And the game itself has stolen deeper sources of meaning from us, swindled us out of them. Because meaning tied to the soul and the sacred, meaning rooted in living ecologies, and loving virtues, such meanings will always oppose the false meanings of the bribe, the swindle, the coup that Lewis Mumford refers to, or what Jung once described as a nothing but life. Nothing but. We're nothing but matter that doesn't matter. 
is a lot of nothing but in academia. Or as Jeffrey Kripo puts it, the truth has to be depressing. Now we remain under the thrall of centuries, even millennia of error, even though this all got ramped up a lot more since the time of Adam Smith and even more so in the past hundred years and even more so since the 1950s. Some people argue that that's the beginning of the Anthropocene. But it's old, this ignorance. That's why the wisdom traditions are so important right now because they've been warning us about this and giving us a way out for millennia. Why should we keep ignoring this? We could get ourselves out. They, they, get, they could help us. Sheldon Wolin, we mentioned him before. Now, he veers directly into, I think, Gregory Bateson's ecological thinking when he talks about the error as arising from a lack of skill with large-scale patterns. That's, I think Gregory Bateson would like his analysis of this. So it's ecological, but he's talking politics. Now, here's where we're going to get to this inverted totalitarianism that Sheldon Wolin wrote about. And I'll read you a passage from it. It's a little bit longer, but it's worth listening to. He's very accessible, and I'll let you know when we get to the end. So here's Sheldon Wolin. Unlike the classic forms of totalitarianism, which openly boasted of their intentions to force their societies into a preconceived totality, Inverted totalitarianism is not expressly conceptualized as an ideology or objectified in public policy. Typically, it is furthered by power holders and citizens who often seem unaware of the deeper consequences of their actions or inactions. There is a certain heedlessness an inability to take seriously the extent to which a pattern of consequences may take shape without having been preconceived. The fundamental reason for this deep-seated carelessness is related to the well-known American zest for change and, equally remarkable, the good fortune of Americans in having at their disposal a vast continent rich in natural resources, inviting exploitation. Although it is a cliché that the history of American society has been one of unceasing change, the consequences of today's increased tempos are less obvious. Change works to displace existing beliefs, practices, and expectations Although societies throughout history have experienced change, it is only over the past four centuries that promoting innovation became a major focus of public policy. Today, thanks to the highly organized pursuit of technological innovation and the culture it encourages, change is more rapid, more encompassing, more welcomed than ever before, which means that institutions, values, and expectations share with technology a limited shelf life. We are experiencing the triumph of contemporaneity and of its accomplice, forgetting 
or collective amnesia. Stated somewhat differently, in early modern times, change displaced traditions. Today, change succeeds change. The effect of unending change is to undercut consolidation. Consider, for example, that more than a century after the Civil War, the consequences of slavery still linger. That close to a century after women won the vote, their equality remains contested. Or that after nearly two centuries, during which public schools became a reality, education is now being increasingly privatized. In order to gain a handle on the problem of change, we might recall that among political and intellectual circles beginning in the last half of the 17th century, and especially during the 18th century Enlightenment, there was a growing conviction that for the first time in recorded history, it was possible for human beings to deliberately shape their future. Thanks to advances in science and invention, it was possible to conceive change as progress, an advancement benefiting all members of society. Progress stood for change that was constructive, that would bring something new into the world and to the advantage of all. The champions of progress believed that while change might result in the disappearance or destruction of established beliefs, customs, and interests, the vast majority of these deserved to go because they mostly served the few while keeping the many in ignorance, poverty, and sickness. An important element in this early modern conception of progress was that change was crucially a matter for political determination by those who could be held accountable for decisions that understanding of change was pretty much overwhelmed by the emergence of concentrations of economic power that took place during the latter half of the 19th century. Change became a private enterprise, inseparable from exploitation and opportunism, thereby constituting a major, if not the major, element in the dynamic of capitalism. Opportunism involved an unceasing search for what might be exploitable, and soon that meant virtually anything, from religion to politics to human well-being. Very little, if anything, was taboo. As before long, change became the object of premeditated strategies for maximizing profits. It is often noted that today change is more rapid, more encompassing than ever before. In later pages, I shall suggest that American democracy has never been truly consolidated. Some of its key elements remain unrealized or vulnerable. Others have been exploited for anti-democratic ends. Political institutions have typically been described as the means by which a society tries to order change. The assumption was that political institutions would themselves remain stable. 
as exemplified in the ideal of a constitution as a relatively unchanging structure for defining the uses and limits of public power and the accountability of officeholders. Today, however, some of the political changes are revolutionary, others are counter-revolutionary. Some chart new directions for the nation and introduce new techniques for extending American power, both internally, such as surveillance of citizens, and externally, such as 700 military bases abroad, beyond any point imagined by previous administrations. Other changes are counter-revolutionary in the sense of reversing social policies originally aimed at improving the lot of the middle and poorer classes. How to persuade the reader that the actual direction of contemporary politics is toward a political system the very opposite of what the political leadership, the mass media, and think tank oracles claim that it is, the world's foremost exemplar of democracy. Now that's a really heavy passage in the sense of its implications. I think it's easy enough to follow. So we fancy the United States being the foremost exemplar of democracy, and really he's saying it's an inverted totalitarianism. It is a totalitarian state, but of a, a new kind. And in part, he's saying there's ignorance driving it, and one form of that ignorance is the people in power don't actually even realize the consequences of the decisions they make because of large-scale patterns that constitute our living world that we can't perceive. In other words, it's a complex system, highly complex system, and we don't see how interwoven everything is and how one thing affected over here and maybe in a seemingly small way can have very big repercussions in places we didn't expect. There's really a lot in that passage. I encourage you to just go back and listen to it again. Listen to the whole thing. Listen to this whole contemplation again. Usually you'll find these contemplations require multiple listenings. And that's just because we're dealing with wisdom, love, and beauty. If we were already wise, we'd know it all. Otherwise, things will appear as we go further with our critical thinking, our critical reflection, more resonance will come out, especially between this and other contemplations, all the way to the beginning of this year and actually even beyond that. Okay, so, Wolin is really trying to help us see that we are change crazy and that Sorrowville now, this crazy wheel of insanity goes round and around looking for more and more change and that the change, everything we do, is an exploitation to try to create the next new thing that will maximize profit. And that happens even on a personal level. I know some of you out there are individuals who don't want to have to work for the big machine. And so you might be seeking self-employment. Maybe you're creatives. And you want to find a way to how can I support myself using my art? And what are you told? We're all told that we basically have to have the next new thing. We have to self-brand. We have to create a customer avatar. We have to do search engine optimization. We have to do all this stuff to maximize profit. It's often put in very nice words. But it's still the same game. 
And in this passage from Sheldon Wolin and in our whole contemplation here and in others, we can sense the way the aesthetic, the beauty dimension of experience, and the ethical, which is the love and compassion dimension of experience, and also the general dimension of wisdom, those all come together in balance, in a mode of health, these dimensions work together to empower our experience of sacredness. And when they get broken down, as they have in the current system, they disconnect us. That brokenness disconnects us from the sacred. Sacredness is a making sacred, which doesn't mean a mere projection, but a participatory activity a co-discovery creation. It's not just discovery, it's not just creation, and it's not something we do as an individual cut off from the rest. And when our way of knowing ourselves, each other, and the world becomes compromised by a loss of certain aesthetic and ethical factors, when we cannot find skillful spiritual ways of liberating ourselves into larger ecologies of mind that allow us to know ourselves, each other, in our world in healthy, healing, and holistic and holy ways and thus arrive at insights, arrive at our true original thinking that can cultivate the whole of life onward, then instead of all that good stuff, we will desacralize the world and perpetuate a process, a pattern of degradation. And that's what Wolin's getting at. He properly relates our inability to think ecologically, or we could say systemically, although systems thinking is a, a bit of an abused phrase, but he relates our inability to think ecologically with an abundance of nature to absorb the burden of our stupidity. So that happens. Nature is very kind that way. The community of life is so kind and compassionate that it will absorb for us a certain amount of our ignorance. You can pollute the river a little bit and nothing too bad will happen. Maybe somebody gets a little sick and you realize that you've made a mistake. Now, when you poison all the rivers, you're done. Nature gets to the point where she says, look, I can't absorb any more ignorance. Your ignorance is at a scale inconceivable to you. And as Gregory Bateson and other thinkers have pointed out, the lack of wisdom, that is, attunement with these ecological and spiritual realities, and the concomitant employment of a bad form of magical thinking, which appears as science and technology, that sort of activity never goes unpunished, which means it's going to create negative side effects and karma. So when we have a lack of wisdom, we'll try to make up for it by means of magical thinking. And I mean this in in the, the negative sense. But what is how would I define the magical thinking? Well, it's the way we use science and technology. That's magical thinking. Ordinarily, we want to say that magical thinking is the belief in magic. 
No, I'm saying that magical thinking in our context is the belief in science and technology and capitalism and economics and democracy. That's all magical thinking. And that, that lack of wisdom and that kind of magical thinking it does not go unpunished, so to speak. There are consequences for our actions. Karma and negative side effects that we carry with us like Jacob Marley's chains. And so then what happens? Well, all of it triggers us to need medication and entertainment and so on because we forsake real meaning, real intimacy, real interwovenness, real wisdom, love, and beauty. In a way, things stop happening. That's the great paradox. Another one. We already mentioned one paradox before. But there's this other weird paradox that change is happening at an unprecedented rate and scale. And Wolin is saying that's what we, that's, we're totally sucked into this. Change succeeding change. And we don't have any idea of how to balance the non-duality of pattern maintenance and pattern transcendence. So there's change happening at an unprecedented rate and yet nothing's happening. That's what's weird. It's as if things stopped happening because we've lost the sense of meaning. So nothing happens in a meaningful enough way to help us really transcend our suffering. And then we get sucked even further into limited and limiting thinking. Now here's how Jung put it. We mentioned that we hinted at this before. But here, this is a, a pa- passage from Carl Jung. He, he wrote, Everything is banal. Everything is nothing but. And that is the reason why people are neurotic. They are simply sick of the whole thing, sick of that banal life, and therefore they want sensation. They even want a war. They all want a war. They are all glad when there is a war. They say, thank heaven, now something is going to happen, something bigger than ourselves. So this is, I know, we, our conscious mind says, who in the world wants a war? This guy is crazy. And Jung is saying, oh, I know you don't consciously want it, although some people do consciously probably want it. He said, no, sure, you, you don't consciously want it, but something in you wants it. And it's a horrifying thing to contemplate. We have a war in Europe right now. And it sure makes us feel like something's happening. Because otherwise, the only new thing that's happening is when the next electric car is released. Oh, what a big event that is. How meaningful for my life. I guess I'll be enlightened and happy now. Truly at peace. Because the new model of this electric car is available. The new phone. Nothing is happening. All this stuff is happening, (laughs) but it's meaningless. And we know it is. And the real meaning, we don't get in touch with. If we were to start to turn toward it, we would see that the world's falling apart. And then we sure would have something to deal with, but we are frightened. And this idea of something bigger than ourselves that Jung is talking about, it means a decentering of the ego. It's actually a transcendence of the sort of more narrow notion of what an autonomous individual is, what freedom is. 
the something bigger than ourselves in one way or another is something spiritual, something ethical. It's about our interwovenness and this we have transgressed against. To put it maybe a little more clearly, our culture, the dominant culture, encourages the opposite of meaningfulness, sacredness, wisdom, love, beauty. It encourages the opposite of that. So therefore it encourages like an incoherency that we must try to find meaning in individualism and individuality. Which is like saying the culture directs us to find wholeness in fragmentation. To find wisdom, love and beauty in ignorance. In competition, materiality, property, distraction, degradation, medication, nihilism. In such a situation, patriotism, religious dogmatism, and materialism itself all become medications, synthetic substitutions offered to placate the soul's need for sacredness. In the case of the atheist in particular, scientific materialism holds the place of religious dogma, and patriotism becomes defense of the territory of reason because reason is the encumbered strict father in this case, against the ignorance and magical thinking of the masses. But all of us get swindled and seduced by materialism to give up on the sacredness of the world, to treat the world like a collection of matter that doesn't really matter, a collection of stuff to be exploited for whatever we want to do. Even the most religious or spiritual among us can get infected with this kind of materialistic thinking. And it's why some of the most spiritual people won't think twice, for instance, about getting on an airplane and flying halfway across the world. In this kind of cultural context, work becomes a rather intense symptom and source of symptoms because the soul hungers for meaningful work, work connected with life and with love. And we cannot have deeply meaningful work in the ecologies of suffering cultivated by the dominant culture. As Sheldon Wallen puts it, the inability to take seriously the extent to which a pattern of consequences may take shape without having been preconceived. That's what he wrote. The inability to take seriously the extent to which a pattern of consequences may take shape without having been preconceived locks us into a pattern of insanity that can only be healed by madness. That's Plato's prescription. We'll talk about that another time. For now, we just want to focus on the fact that we don't fully comprehend this pattern of insanity or it would break apart. So even if you're sitting there saying, Amen, Dr. Nikos, I'm in the choir, this is it. If we truly understood it and understood it, the pattern would dispel. It would just melt. So we don't fully understand it, but we do sense so many of the symptoms. We sense the loss of meaningfulness of our work. We maybe cannot sense the larger and fuller consequences of that loss of meaning and its intimate relation to the living world, the living, loving world. But something in us senses the lack of real meaning and that explains why 
Roughly 70% of workers are not engaged with their work. And that includes over 17% who are actively disengaged. It's a shocking statistic. The psychological, spiritual need for meaningful work and how to establish meaningful work has been little discussed in most of our university philosophy courses, and I would say probably our university economics and political courses as well. We don't really understand it. We don't understand how to talk to our students about the need to establish meaningful work and what that would entail given our best understanding of ecology and spirituality. And that ignorance fuels a great deal of violence and confusion in the society and in places served by the society or exploited by the society. For instance, it fuels a perpetuation of poverty in part because the propaganda of the dominant culture has taught us not to trust poor people or out-of-work people because they're going to take advantage of us if we help them. We see this all the time. Can't trust social services. People will just take advantage of it. We're terrified of that. Somebody, oh, heaven forbid, that they're going to get $200 a month to buy food. The culture must keep us away from any holistic cultivation of compassion, real compassion. We may use the word compassion, but generally speaking, we focus on empathy at best, at best. Sometimes we don't even get that far. We stay away from the concrete practices and teachings on compassion because the culture depends on ill-being. It depends on fragmentation. It depends on a denial of the interwovenness of things. It depends on an encouragement of mistrust. It depends on actively misknowing, actively misknowing ourselves and our world and each other. And it depends on an obsession with pain and pleasure, material gain and loss, praise and blame, and celebrity and social invisibility. It depends on all those things. As a general rule in this kind of culture, we must, we must lack truly meaningful work. And what meaningful work we do happen to find, may come with significant rationalizations because the culture as a whole is so out of uh, congruence with the conditions of life. So on the surface, the work could look meaningful, but then there might be all sorts of rationalizations because it's somehow deeply not meaningful, even if it could be. But in some cases, it's just a complete rationalization. And our repression of all of this, our refusal to confront the anger, depression, and despair over how meaningless our jobs are, or how once meaningful jobs or potentially meaningful jobs have become compromised and degraded, all of this makes us unwell, and we look in all the wrong places for a cure. We can also note here that lack of meaningful work goes together with a dearth of compassion. That's why we're talking about it in part next to each other, but these things are all interwoven. Compassion for both ourselves and others demands that we approach work in a way that challenges the pattern of insanity. Work must attune us with life, with life, not with narrow human agendas. 
And work must further the conditions of life. It must further those conditions rather than degrade them. The psychologist James Hillman touched on some of these threads. Here's what Hillman says. He says, The thing that therapy pushes is relationship. Yet work may matter just as much as relationship. You think you're going to die if you're not in a good relationship. You feel that not being in a significant, long-lasting, deep relationship is going to cripple you or that you're crazy or neurotic or something. You feel intense bouts of longing and loneliness. But those feelings are not only due to poor relationship. They also come because you're not in any kind of political community that makes sense, that matters. Therapy pushes the relationship issues, but what intensifies those issues is that A, we don't have satisfactory work, or B, we don't have satisfactory political community. You just can't make up for the loss of passion and purpose in your daily work by intensifying your personal relationships. I think we talk so much about inner growth and development because we are so boxed in to petty private concerns on our jobs. So there's something I think really important there. Hillman's, of course, not saying that these other areas aren't relational, because they are. He's saying that we get caught up on romantic relationships. And meanwhile, there are other kinds of relationality that constitute our being, including our political and our work life. This disengagement, this being trapped in petty, meaningless, and terribly authoritarian activity, along with our general level of pain and suffering and the general collapse of meaning that goes all together with the rise of nihilism and the degradation of ecologies that forms the context and, ironically, the aim of all our thinking, that drives us into addictive behaviors, including, as we've suggested, the addiction to abstractions, intellectualism, knowledge, control, writing, analyzing, all these means of escape that we try, even if it takes a confrontation with our own spiritual materialism to see this, to be able to honestly admit all the ways we've distracted ourselves as part of the magnificent swindle, the magnificent bribe, the magnificent coup. We could say there is always going to be a cycle or set of cycles in life But then we got to ask, what does the cycle reinforce? We are lived by powers. We pretend to understand what powers will live us in any given cycle. Because we become so materialistic and deluded, disconnected, fragmented, and fragmenting, our cycles reinforce suffering to a degree that has become basically traumatizing. I think it's why we have such a high level of trauma in our society. And oddly, perhaps, because we have tended to reinforce suffering in general for a long time now, we have become increasingly materialistic, or at least increasingly prone to seek a kind of material escape through numbing medication and degrading consumption. 
rather than healing medicine and vitalizing consummation. The main thing to realize about our materialism, particularly with respect to the magnificent bribe, is that materialism of any variety cannot make us happy. It amounts to trying to eat shadows to fill our hunger. It's not that we are immaterial beings. It's just that we are not material beings. The work of Tim Kasser is particularly interesting in terms of the scientific establishment of the ills of materialism, the ilth that comes hand in hand with wealth, so-called wealth. Kasser's 2002 book, The High Price of Materialism, summarizes some of the key findings. His work indicates that the actual pursuit, just the pursuit of materialism, leads to ill-being. In other words, in our context, what we call the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of property, that is the pursuit of ill-being. If that pursuit is there, people are going to feel less happy. Even the aspiration to materialism increases ill-being. Now, the ill-being we're speaking of is not just unhappiness, but It's also more physical pain and possibly more physical illness. That's what the data shows. The data shows that materialism seems to cause unhappiness. And then unhappiness itself in turn drives materialism. And that shows that well-put-togetherness of our suffering, the feedback loop of suffering, Sorrowville, the big wheel going round and round, Materialism causes unhappiness, happiness drives materialism, and on and on it goes. New change, new change, new change, 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 and all that change is that wheel going around and around. These are findings that most spiritual traditions have reasoned through in pretty good detail, in some cases in very good detail. Some Spiritual traditions have already done a scientific verification of the unhealthiness of materialism by means of a science of mind. Some academics these days get offended by that suggestion, but there it is, friends. By carefully observing the effects of materialistic thoughts, aspirations, and actions, some traditions have made an empirical, experimental case for the total unworkability of a materialistic orientation to life. And that's why Adam Smith confesses to that. He says, this is not going to make us happy. The sage has already told us that. Now that contrast, though, could still be a little confusing. If we say that a spiritual life is the only realistic chance we have for true fulfillment, and that a materialistic life leads inevitably to ill-being for ourselves and others, what are we saying? Some people in the dominant culture especially tend to think of the contrast between the material and the spiritual as something like a contrast between reality and something airy-fairy. We sometimes make this contrast through the dualities of science and spirituality, or the natural and the supernatural, or the rational and the mystical. But the sense of spirituality we have touched upon so many times in our contemplations makes it clear that we should have something else in mind. Indeed, 
something close to the opposite in mind. The basic idea goes something like this. Spirituality refers to a commitment to bring something to realization for oneself and all beings. Not merely to believe or to know, but to taste directly. That is Sophia as Sapienza. To participate in life. To participate in something meaningful that transcends the ego, which is a forgetting or decentering of the self that we habitually identify with. And the transcendence we need demands a better way of knowing and being, a better way of living and loving, a more skillful way of life. Spirituality fundamentally involves insight and intimacy, the presencing of wisdom, love, and beauty. And these are not physical things. They are not objects and are not material in any reasonable sense. Moreover, we have no indication that anything material can provide these experiences. And so to think of the world in material terms, to pursue material objects or material gain, to exploit material resources, which is already a reduction of the sacred, to do objective and materialistic science and technology. All of this will lead us into difficulty because these gestures lead us away from our basic spiritual hunger. Not the hunger to eat more shadows, but the hunger to know ourselves, to know the nature of reality, to know each other, to enjoy true peace and happiness, true freedom, true wisdom, love and beauty to practice and realize a meaningful existence. That kind of basic hunger, I always thought when I was in the university, that should make philosophy courses the most popular courses at any modern university. And it should make philosophy the most common major, maybe the most common major. And what we have now then should stand out as symptomatic of a most serious illness. a life-threatening illness, or we could say a conditions-of-life-threatening illness, because the conditions of life are threatened. We do not seem to have any way of making ourselves happy and healthy with a materialistic approach to life. But the basic dynamics of our culture rely on a materialistic approach to everything. That's what we've seen laid out by Sheldon Wolin and by Lewis Mumford. We are encouraged or seduced, bribed, swindled into materialism and away from anything spiritual. And to help the bondage function, the spiritual is placed at odds with the material, the scientific and the economic. The scientist and the engineer are forced to feel like sellouts if they pursue anything that sounds like woo-woo, anything that sounds super, super nature, no, anything that sounds like philosophy, love, even faith, which is not completely absent from our spiritual life. 
Spirituality, we said, means to find out for oneself, not merely to believe. But at first, we need a little bit of, you could say, confidence in the tradition that we've chosen to work in. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother running the experiments, but you still have to run the experiments. In any case, all of this stuff gets cast as weakness, as naivete, some kind of affront to reason and rationality. And the result is a spectrum of trauma and addiction from which all of us suffer in varying forms and varying degrees even if we're lucky enough to be at less intense parts of that spectrum. The famous addiction researcher Bruce Alexander sums up the situation rather nicely. He wrote, Global society is drowning in addiction to drug use and a thousand other habits. This is because people around the world, rich and poor alike, are being torn from the close ties to family, culture, and traditional spirituality that constitute the normal fabric of life in pre-modern times. This kind of global society subjects people to unrelenting pressure towards individualism and competition, dislocating them from social life. People adapt to this dislocation by concocting the best substitutes that they can for a sustaining social, cultural, and spiritual wholeness. And addiction provides this substitute for more and more of us. History shows that addiction can be rare in a society for many centuries, but can become nearly universal when circumstances change. For example, when a cohesive tribal culture is crushed, or an advanced civilization, collapses. Alexander is famous, that's the end of that quote, it's really worth thinking about it carefully, and he is famous for his work on a little project called Rat Park. Maybe you've heard of it. It's something that he noticed as a young researcher. It dawned on him that the addiction research, all of it, was done with rats, that had the rats living alone in bare metal cages. Now, that's not a life for any living being, and rats are social. We may, it may disturb us to understand they're so much like us. And in those terrible conditions in which the rats were sometimes starved for 24 hours so that they would perform the experiments in exchange for food pellets, again, what capitalism provides as food, what science and technology provides as food, So in that context, they're rigged up for addiction research. And it involves surgically implanting a needle that would inject a drug into the rat every time they pressed a little lever. And the rats quickly developed strong symptoms of addiction. And then the scientists concluded that drugs like heroin and cocaine are so addictive that if we take them, we automatically want more. And then Alexander started to wonder, well, is there more to the story? Because this seems unnatural. So he and his team built Rat Park. It was a nice place for the rats to all live together. They had all kinds of rat friends to play with. They had toys and other sources of stimulation and exercise. Now, it was not as rich and exciting as life outside the lab, but it was way better 
than the bare metal cage where you're all by yourself and all you've got is food pellets. Then the researchers made drugs available in the park. And what they found is far lower levels of addiction than in the standard studies. Eventually they came to the realization that human beings are more likely to take drugs and become addicted to them when they are, at one level or another, experiencing a caged life. Now, when Michael Pollan took ayahuasca, the the vine, the plant, spoke to him and offered him a kind of Zen master's koan. It said to him, only an animal can be caged. And Pollan said he had to really sit with that and try not to grasp after an answer. And I think we have to, too. Our trauma, anxiety, addiction, depression, loneliness, imposter syndrome, all of it, these are ecological problems. Ecological problems in a very broad sense. So they are spiritual and ecological problems. They are not issues of individual psychology or even social or economic maladies. It's important to see the ways in which our society isolates us and essentially creates a caged life, a domesticated, bare, barren ecology, a degraded landscape of the soul that arises altogether with a degraded landscape of the world. In this culture of fear, stress, and trauma, we are taught to be suspicious of and competitive with each other. In other words, we are inducted, induced, seduced, bribed, swindled into conquest consciousness. Writing about the troubling rise of loneliness, a disease of those who have made themselves a caged species, a disease of people who lack a nature-culture non-duality that helps them practice and realize an ecosensual awareness. George Mombayok notes the following, quote, Ebola is unlikely ever to kill as many people as this disease strikes down. Social isolation is as potent a cause of early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness, research suggests, is twice as deadly as obesity. Dementia, high blood pressure, alcoholism, and accidents, all these, like depression, paranoia, anxiety, and suicide, become more prevalent when connections are cut. We cannot cope alone. Yes, factories have closed. People travel by car instead of buses. They use YouTube rather than the cinema. But these shifts alone fail to explain the speed of our social collapse. These structural changes have been accompanied by a life-denying ideology which enforces and celebrates our social isolation. The war of every man against every man Competition and individualism, in other words, is the religion of our time, justified by a mythology of lone rangers, sole traders, self-starters, self-made men and women going it alone. For the most social of creatures, 
who cannot prosper without love, there is no such thing as society, only heroic individualism. What counts is to win. The rest is collateral damage. When that's the end of the passage from Mombayot, and I think it's, re- it's, it's so important to consider this. We've talked about the real wealth of nations is our interwovenness. So when creatures like us, creatures of interbeing, creatures of interwovenness are isolated, we cannot function at our best. We cannot easily see into the ills of our own society and envision alternatives. And we are not enmeshed in a living connection with one another. We lose that intimacy. We long for love and connection from the core of what we could call our biology and our psychology, but also from our spiritual center. But a materialistic approach must drive us apart. It must drive us apart from ourselves, apart from each other, apart from other sentient beings, including countless wild beings and the wildness of nature. It drives us apart from a landscape and a natural world, drives us apart from heaven and earth, drives us apart from wisdom, love, and beauty. A materialistic approach to life must drive us apart from these most precious things or otherwise we would discover that we have no interest in material things and the whole game would fall apart. Now this doesn't mean we all go live in a cave somewhere. That's not what we're, t- we're getting at. We're talking about materialism. And we're talking about how we could begin to dissolve this game and return ourselves to ourselves and to our fuller potentials, potentials we can't even conceive of right now, but which we could if we started to come back together again, get back in touch with that interwovenness, back in touch with wisdom and wildness in their non-duality, the non-duality of spiritual and ecological realities, we can become attuned to them. And the wisdom traditions can help us. We need them now more than ever. If you have questions, reflections, stories to share about the magical and sacred interwovenness of cosmos and psyche or anything else we've discussed, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.